Good morning, everybody. I'm Larry Jacobs. It is Monday, the day before Halloween, October 30th, 2023, and it's raining today, so hopefully the clouds will dry up before tomorrow's uh, trick-or-treating. And we have a wonderful guest for you today. We've got Dr. Brian Rosenberg. Dr. Rosenberg is the president emeritus, the former president of McAllister College, and he's a visiting professor at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. Uh, So obviously he's a pretty bright guy. And he also wrote a book, which I love the title. Thank you, Dr. Marx, whatever it is. I'm against it, once said Groucho Marx. Okay, resistance to change in higher education. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, which is uh, something that has been on my mind for a long time. You know, things have changed out there. And I'll let Brian talk from his point of view. I'll give you a little insight from mine. You can make your own opinions. But it has a lot to do with a lot of things, including what we care about here, which is equity. All right, and I'm going to let him talk about that as well as myself a little bit later, but it's really interesting. We're going to archive this. I'm Larry Jacobs. Did I mention that today? I'm Larry Jacobs. This is Pre-K-12 Education Talk Radio. Okay, day before Halloween, 2023, and we're going to archive this show like we always do over at ace-ed.org, ace-ed.org. That's the home website of our American Consortium for Equity in Education. If you go over there, you'll see our magazine which is called Equity and Access Pre-K-12. It's Everything we do is free over there, so please just check on the, uh, click on the uh, cover and enjoy the newest issue. And all our podcasts are over there, and our Excellence in Equity Awards program is over there for Pre-K-12 educators. We did the industry side. We just kind of finished that one. We're working on the winners right now. And uh, we're starting the educator side. So please, you can nominate yourself. You can nominate your college. You can nominate your school, whatever you want to do. And uh, please check it all out. It's very popular. It's a lot of fun. And uh, we love to honor these people who are working so hard for equity in education. And, again, everything is over at ace-ed.org. And I hope you take a minute and then stay there. Take a minute to click over and then stay there and see all the stuff we do all about equity in education. We're really trying here to keep that in the forefront of education. And enough of me blabbing. Good morning, Dr. Brian Rosenberg. It's Larry here. Uh, Happy to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you here, sir. And where are, are you in? Where are you today? Are you in? Are you I in am Boston? in rainy, chilly Cambridge, Massachusetts. Well, I'm in rainy, chilly Cornish, Maine. I'm up here about two hours yeah. north of you. Yeah, same so where exactly? Where exactly is Cornish? Well, do you know where Portland is? I do. I've been there. Well, okay, Portland. We are we are exactly between Portland and North Conway, New Hampshire. West and a little bit north of the city of Portland, about 45 minutes. Great. Well, it's a beautiful area. I love Maine. It is. It is in the foothills of the White Mountains. I go up to the top of my hill. I can see Mount Washington and all the whites. It's pretty cool up there. Brian, come up and visit. Okay. I, I will. I will. Yeah. I, I'm taking that as an invitation. Please do. You are more than welcome. And uh, I, I got to tell you, it's, it's unfortunately, although I'm sure it's pretty down in Massachusetts right now. Okay, we're getting towards the end of the fall color situation. The leaf peepers. I know. I okay, know. they won't be disappointed, but they only have uh, another week max before it's all gone. So uh, yeah, what I can know. I tell you? I get it. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I know you do, and you know how beautiful it is. Tell everybody about McAllister. I have to tell you a funny story before I do this. Okay. Every uh, time I see so, the wait, every time I see the word whereas, everybody knows the word whereas. I I read it as warious, and then I have to go back and 
what the hell was that? And then I realized it's whereas. And every time I see McAllister College, I read it as McAllister. So bear with me on that one. Okay? I don't want to be a... I will. Yeah. McAllister. Talk about it. Yours there. Then we'll get Uh, into the book. So first of all, it is probably the most frequently misspelled college name in America. (laughs) Every every possible way that 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 college name could be misspelled, it's misspelled. (laughs) Uh, McAllister is is an excellent liberal arts college, typical liberal arts college size, which means right now about 2,100 students located in St. Paul, Minnesota, founded in 1874, and probably best known for a very early focus on uh, recruiting students and training students to be citizens of the world. So, um, Kofi Annan graduated from McAllister College wow. in 1961. Wow. Uh, Walter Mondale was a McAllister student, class of 1950. Uh, and there was a very visionary president in the middle of the 20th century who actually served in the Second World War and came back and said, you know, for higher education to fulfill its mission in this century, we can't just be parochial. We really need to be focused on the globe. And so before it became mm. trendy to, to do so, McAllister was really fo- focused on being a globally focused institution, and it's tried to remain that way, which, is, which has been which was a treat for me when I was there. About um, 20% of the student body is international from all over the nice. world, about 90 different nice. countries. So it was, it was a great, if not always, easy experience. No, I know what nothing should be that easy, okay? And I know you were a good president there, and I I read your book and know that some of the experiences you had there and your experiences brought together this this book. And thank you, as I said, Doctor Groucho, for picking that title. I love it, okay? It, Whatever it, it is, I'm yeah, against well, it. I think I, you I, love it you too. Know, the, I, oh yeah. yeah, I mean, it, I was I was skeptical about the willingness of the press to go with the title, but they were, <laughs> and I thank them for it. I, I thank them, too, because actually it sums up a lot and uh, a, a lot these days. And I think we're going to focus here, obviously, on higher ed. What are you doing, if I may, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education? So what, what you doing my there? last semester at my last semester at McAllister was the spring of 2020, which you might recall was the first covid semester. Yeah, so I one of remember. the last things I had to do as president was send all the students home. And um, I was fortunate enough uh, before I left McAllister to be invited to the Harvard Graduate School of Education to be something called president in residence, which is a position (laughs) that uh, works with the graduate students in higher education. I came, I did that. Everything was online that year. And they Mm. asked me if I'd be interested in doing some teaching. And I said, yes, I hadn't been in the classroom for quite a while. Uh, but I got to teach two classes over Zoom, which was an interesting experience. I would imagine. And I loved I loved working with students again. I did not realize how much I missed teaching. And so they asked me if I'd be interested in continuing. I said yes. So I, I teach a, about a course and a half a year here. Uh, and um, I love the students. They're pretty much all graduate students in the higher oh, education yeah. program. They all want to change the world. Uh, relevant to your to your show and your interests, tremendous emphasis on equity and the lack of equity in, in education. Uh, so it's it's been it's been a good experience. 
Harvard is a weird place, um, but <laughs> but I've especially these things. last five weeks, it's been really oh, pretty weird. Yeah, um, I know. Yeah, since for, since the since the, the Moss-Israel war, the poor new president. Yeah. yeah, say that again. What'd you just say? say I it. said, imagine being Paul, Paul, uh, Claudine Gay, the the new president, and stepping into this. Yeah, I know, and, and I just read where she's forming a. I just got it out of the Boston Globe that she's forming some committee or something over there to deal with all this. There is a lot of questions to be answered, and it's a good place to answer them. And I hope everybody keeps their minds and eyes open and keeps their mouths shut until they want to say something intelligent. Okay, and that's uh, that's exactly what it should be over there. And it's been You're the last, last couple of weeks. I've not been I've not been easy at Harvard. I got to tell you, Nate, you got to look at that. Okay. And again, I I always like to say, and this is very important, I don't want to take sides in this uh, particular issue, but we have to remember these are young people. Okay. Idealistic in some ways and perhaps inappropriately in some ways. Again, I want to try to be neutral here. Okay. But these are young people. They aren't wise, Brian, like you and I. All right. We have all these years behind us. We know, you know, so it's it's a hard thing to judge. And some of the things that they're being put through are are pretty outrageous. No, oh, it's horrible. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. It's bad, and I'm glad Dr. Gay is putting all this. President Gay is putting all this together at Harvard, and uh, we'll, we'll make. Well, it will change, and it will die down. And it will be better. Okay, hopefully, yeah. and that's the way we do. So let's let's move on to this. Okay. Uh, all right, I'll just ask you a generic question, okay? You can stay mm-hmm. on the show now for the next six hours. What's wrong with higher education <laughs> these days? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, Sorry. Um, yeah. so it is, a, it is a, a big question, but let me try yeah. to whittle it down to a, a very straightforward answer. When people ask Thank me you. that question, and I get asked it a lot, uh, I say um, I want you to respond to two numbers. Uh, 56 and 46. 56 percent is the average discount rate right now at private colleges across the United States. Uh, That is, higher education at private colleges in the United States is essentially on sale for more than half off. Wow. And it's been that that percentage has been increasing every year, not by a little bit, but by a lot, Uh, not by a tenth of a point, but by two or three points a year. Uh, and if you keep marking down your service more and more, sooner or later you're going to be giving it away for free, and that is obviously right. unsustainable. Uh, right. The other number is 46, and this is what's particularly relevant, I think, to your, to your show and all the work that you do. 46% is the number of African-American students who enter college and graduate so, within six years. Not four years. Six years. Yeah, six. And of course, that yeah. doesn't take into account all the students who don't, who don't even get to higher education. So what I say is, the first number is unsustainable, and the second number is unacceptable. That's right. And so anybody who who says, well, we don't really need to change very much, you know, my response is, talk to me about those numbers. Talk to me about how a discount rate of 56% and climbing is economically sustainable, particularly when we're looking at the demographics of the next 10 years, which hit especially hard in the region where you and I live. Yep. And talk to me how 46% graduation rate after six years is okay. So, so to me, you know, there are a lot of things that are good about higher education. There are a lot of things that could be better. 
But those two numbers sort of encapsulate both the economic problem of college that costs too much uh, and the effectiveness problem of college that is simply not graduating enough students, particularly underrepresented students. That's that's right. Did you say, did you, do you remember, and you're, you're in Boston now, and I don't remember when this came out, probably, I don't know if it was before you got here, the valedictorian report. Have you ever looked at that from the Boston Globe? I don't think so. I, the, so. and I can't remember exactly what they called it, but what they did, they followed up. This was probably just before the pandemic, if I'm remembering correctly. They they followed up on the paths in higher education of the students who graduated as valedictorians of their class from Boston public schools. Okay, mm-hmm. and the, the, these wonderful students. Okay, did horrible in college. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's exactly kind of what you're saying. A lot of the kids were Latino. A lot of the kids were African-American. Okay, and not that these kids are stupid at all. They are not stupid, and I'm not blaming Boston public schools or anything like that. But the fact of the matter is they were not college ready. So they thought they were. They got all A's and B's. Okay, they did. Right. Okay, but they, they let's just say their skills were not there. And one of the challenges right. with that, and I have to ask you this, Brian, because you were there. Look, I, I'm obviously a college graduate. I shouldn't say it that way. Okay, I am a college graduate, okay, a master's degree, et cetera. Uh, I'm a pretty good student, but a lot of kids have trouble. And when I, I, I think a lot of the challenges we have is the way what we expect out of, of, of professors, okay? Professors are not trained, if I may, to teach they are trained right. to be academics. They are trained to be historians right. and medical people and all that sort of thing. You can go right down the list, okay? But they need a pedagogy. They're not, they're not looking at their classroom and seeing it. Colleges, if I say this the right way, are not looking at their classroom, seeing a difference and doing something about it, okay? The world is changing. And by the way, not every place, okay, is Harvard, okay? They're, not every place is Harvard. There's a sea change out there, and... The, the expectations have to change. Help me, Brian. I'm trying to get all this out here. So, so higher education is is a really peculiar field. When you think about you think about the training of a college professor, yeah. we call it higher education. It's supposed to be about educating students. Uh, I I got a PhD huh. from a Columbia University in English, long time ago. Um, there was not a single class that I took in pedagogy. There was yeah, not yeah. a single moment of instruction I had in how, how to teach. I was taught to teach essentially by being thrown into the deep end of the pool. Uh, I was placed into a classroom in the Columbia School of General Studies. I was, the, I was 23 years old. I was the youngest person in the room, <laughs> and, and, I was incom- and I was incompetent. Uh, and I like to think that I did my best and I improved as I went along. Uh, but no one, no one prioritized teaching in graduate school. No one taught me how to teach. It's gotten somewhat better. You know, if you're a graduate student now at most, at most PhD programs, you have to take at least one course or some sort of short course in pedagogy or teaching you have to do a little bit of teaching that's good but overwhelmingly the focus is on research and then we throw these people into colleges and universities where they have to teach students uh, often as you say who are not college ready 
and they have to learn on the fly. Yeah. Uh, they they don't have any formal training. It's terrible. But we're charging students. The, the, the students are paying dear money, okay, or will have to pay back dear money, okay, to to get this education. And we can't put people in front of them, okay, that don't know how to teach. And I admit, everybody has to take a couple of years to learn how to teach. That's okay, okay? But we have, we have to make a change out there. And as I said a minute ago, it boils down to economics. And you said that at the beginning. What's going on with mm-hmm. the economics within, within higher ed these days? I just I was talking to a friend whose wife works at a university who, I'm not going to share that university. She said they're on the brink of bankruptcy. They're on the brink mm-hmm. of bankruptcy, Okay. I won't say which, which, which university, but, you know, what's going on out there? I mean, basically, university, and you know it. You were the president of the university. You know, you're basically running a city. You're basically running a small city. Okay? You are. You are. Yeah. And, being the president you... of a college is a lot like being – it's more like being the mayor of a small city than it is like yeah. being the CEO of a corporation. Exactly. Talk about it, okay? And how how do what, so, how do we so, handle the economics of it? So you know, to go back to a point I made earlier, the current economic model for ninety five percent of the colleges and universities in the country is not sustainable over the long, right. or maybe even maybe even the medium term. There may be a hundred colleges and universities in the country that I would describe as economically secure because of their wealth and reputation. Yeah. But there are 4,000 colleges in the country, and the majority of them uh, do not have financial plans that are sustainable over the next 10 to 15 years uh, because costs are rising more rapidly than the willingness or the ability of people to pay for them. Uh, And you combine that with demographics and sort of the definition of an unsustainable financial model. So the only, the only, what drives the cost up? Uh, the simplest answer is the cost of people. About two thirds of the budget of every college and university, it was true at McAllister, and probably, it's probably true at Harvard, uh, goes to paying people. And the cost of paying people, particularly educated workers, has been going up more rapidly mm-hmm. than inflation, more rapidly than the cost of living index, and it's a very people-intensive industry. Uh, and then the second largest driver of cost are these very, very, in many cases, old, large, decaying physical plants. Uh, you have no idea how much it costs to just maintain a physical campus. It's, oh. it's extraordinary. Uh, when I was at McAllister, we had to replace the, the boilers that provided campus heat, $7 million dollars. We had to replace yeah. the, the chillers that provided air conditioning, another $7 million. So the simple answer to how to reduce costs is you have to figure out how to do it with fewer people, and you have to figure out how to do it with less reliant on a very expensive physical plant. And that but is the, not something that higher education has figured out how to do. Which is amazing in, that, in your last statement, because higher education trains the people that businesses and everybody else turns to to solve these challenges. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, we're depending on the very people who are having trouble figuring out how to solve the challenges to, to solve the challenges. And amazingly, 
they do. They go into industry, and, and usually they work it out. So there, there, there's an economic so – so, yeah, it's, it's just amazing you're, you're to me. I'm trying to figure out the best way to why, phrase it. You're yeah. getting at why I wrote my book. Yeah, the, I know why you wrote the, your book, yeah. The paradox that you identify is exactly what's been puzzling me for many years of my career. That is, how is it that an industry that talks about transformation in, in every one of its mission statements, uh, that is filled with people who uh, try to be transformative in their individual disciplines, who go out into other areas and help change things, how is it that that industry is so change-averse? Uh, and you know what I what I end up with is thinking about culture and structures. Yeah. You know, I don't think people who work in higher ed don't want to do a good job. They, do they, do they absolutely job. want to do a good job. They uh, absolutely but they do. come into a system with with certain cultural aspects and structural aspects that make change very very difficult. Uh, and you know I I try to look at at a number of these in the in the book and. Some of yeah. them are issues that people in higher education just don't want to talk about. Uh, and I don't know whether it's honesty or masochism, but I just decided, <laughs> look, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to grab the third rail <laughs> in higher ed that people don't want to grab. And, you know, people can agree, people can disagree, but if at least I can start some important conversations, I will, I will have considered it a success. How is the conversation doing? You're teaching higher ed, future higher education professionals. You're teaching them now at Harvard. Okay, mm-hmm. this is the best. I, I admire Harvard, the best of the best. How has and, and you, you have? I'm sure your course is wonderful. Okay, but how has uh, your course, your colleagues' courses, there changed to reflect the challenges that are out there? I mean, we keep looking, and you said it yourself. You were suddenly mayor of a city at, at McAllister, but but you were you're an English professor, okay? Mm-hmm. And again, I admire that 100%. You're Columbia educated, et cetera, et cetera. You're obviously an incredibly intelligent gentleman, okay? But I can use you, and please understand the way I'm using you, okay? Just simply as an example, are you, and I, I mean this, are you the right person to be running a, a city, okay? That kind of thing. You know, you know, do we need to look outside what we always think is the way to go? That's what I guess I'm asking. And again, Brian, it's not you. I'm just using you as the example. Yeah, you know, I think I think the key question is less, are you from the inside or are you from the outside? Then are you willing to understand the culture of the institution that you're brought into? And then are you willing to figure out what that culture needs and how to change it. And you find some of that from people inside higher ed and some of that from people outside higher ed. The surest recipe for failure as a college president is not taking the time to learn and understand those cultures and those structures and simply coming in and trying to change a college the way you would try to change, you know, a uh, uh, car manufacturer or a microchip manufacturer. It's not going to work. Uh, so I think you find people from inside higher ed who do that well or poorly, and you figure you find people from outside higher ed who do it well or poorly. But, you know, I tried to take a, at least a year um, simply to learn McAllister and to learn its history and to learn what its, what its 
scars were and its and yeah. points of pride were uh, before I really tried to, uh, to, to do anything. And I think it's really important that presidents do that. It is important. I gotta. I was. I've just. I've, I've read chapters and chapters of your book. And this morning, I was. I was reading the shared governance chapter. Okay, mm-hmm. where power is, if I may, disseminated across the entire campus. Those who live there. Okay, and the faculty has tremendous power. My my father just used this line. Whatever he got aggravated with his company. Too many chiefs and not enough engines, as he used to say. A thermal mm-hmm. way to say it these days. Okay, but. In those days, that meant that everybody was trying to get in on the act of running the place, okay? Mm-hmm. And it was creating chaos. Yeah. Okay? And even as I talk to friends of mine who are college professors or were recently college professors, okay, that mentality still exists in there. But you can't have that many people making the decisions about the place, okay? There's got to be somebody in charge. And is that is that acceptable? You know, and again, you're dealing with you're dealing with extremely intelligent people. And we can just go back to Harvard again or any other college. The president is very intelligent. So are all the people he has to work with. I'm speaking of all the professors. They're intelligent. They've got something to say. But at some point, somebody has to make a change. And the example the example is let's cut those tenure positions where there's no kids taking that major in philosophy or whatever that major was or medieval dance. Whatever it was, how do you handle this? <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I, I actually know somebody who paid for their son, their daughter, excuse me, to get a degree in medieval dance. I won't say what college. Yeah, okay. good luck to them on that one. Thank you. I couldn't so, agree more. Okay, I'll see you at Stonehenge. You know, yeah, yeah. So look, you know, the the system in higher education was designed for an industry. Uh, that was going to undergo very slow, very incremental change. It was designed for stability and to prevent dramatic change. Any, anybody who studies change management will tell you that consensus among a large group is the enemy of transformational change. You're never going to get <laughs> you. a, a large, degru- group, diverse group of people uh, to agree on a change that is difficult and uncomfortable. Almost by definition, some of those people are going to object to that. And the, the system in higher education is designed so that uh, if, if even a significant group, it doesn't have to be a majority on the faculty, but a significant group objects to a change, they have the ability to stop it. Uh, and that's okay if your industry is very stable. In some ways, it served higher education well during certain certain times in its history, you know, colleges have been around for a long time. And one of the reasons is that they don't change with every change in fashion. My argument is that we're at a different moment right now. Yeah, we are. My argument is that we are at a moment where uh, we need something that is beyond slow incremental change. And this current governance system uh, is not suitable for the moment that we're in. And, and, you know, there's an interesting uh, – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go on. Go on. You sure? You want to finish your thought? Yeah, sure. Go on. Okay. I, 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 one of the things – and you're exactly right about this. And I, One of the phrases that caught on in K-12 education is college and career ready. That's what everybody was supposed to go to college. And I, back, back in the old days, if I may, not everybody was supposed to go to college. 
Okay, college was a place for more elite people, etc., who got the grades. It wasn't fair. Okay, but that's the way it was. And suddenly, if I may, over a course of period of time, nothing wrong with this. Don't misunderstand me. The gates started to open. We think everybody should go to college. And so all of a sudden, everybody was going to college. And the colleges were not prepared for this because they're still training, if I may, elite English and physics professors and all that sort of stuff. All right. And we, we didn't need that at that stage. We got everybody going to these schools. OK. And right. so, yeah, you know, it's, it, I always say to people, we have to eliminate the phrase college and career ready. And we need to just say K-12 is to get people career ready, because if they mm-hmm. want a career that has a, needs a college education. OK, that, that's what the college is for. OK, get them career ready. All right. But mm-hmm. other people, bless their hearts, thank God if you know any, call me, electricians, plumbers, carpenters, break down the list. They do not, they don't go to college. They go maybe to career, a community college, a technical school to right. learn their skills and hone their skills. Okay. So all of a sudden we open the gates, but the higher, higher ed, the professors are not, we get, it's all circular. We get right back to where we were. Okay, we get right. right back to where we were. They're not trained to teach these kids. And I'll tell you a story. A friend of mine was a, a community college professor outside of Detroit, and she would get kids who had graduated with A's and B's. Okay, from this is years ago, from Detroit public schools. And the kids were reading when they went to her community college, which was right outside of Detroit, at a fourth grade level. Mm-hmm. What's a professor supposed to do? In fact, she took on that mantle to train the professors to understand the new kids they were teaching, which went over Thanks. fairly well, but not great. Of course, the professors, again, well, they're supposed to be college ready. It's, it's, right. it's a, thank you, Brian. That's my rant for today. What do you think? <laughs> well, yeah. so two observations. Um, one is that, you know, my definition of an equitable higher education system is not one in which everybody goes to college. It's one yeah. in which everyone who wants to go to college has an opportunity to do so. Doesn't mean that everybody needs to want to or that everybody needs to go in order to be successful in life. But if you are a kid who wants to go to college, you should have an opportunity to do so. It's amazing to me how many people who say that college isn't for everybody send their own kids to college. It's always somebody <laughs> else's kids who don't need to go to college. Yep. So yep. I don't. I totally agree that college is not right <laughs> for everybody. Uh, I think uh, there there may be students who don't need anything beyond training in high school. There may be students for whom stackable credentials would be appropriate. Yep. There may yep. be students for whom community colleges with a more vocational focus would be appropriate. But the key is that the student should get the choice. The student's choice should not be dictate, dictated by economic status or by race. Uh, the second point I would make is that, you know, the, the American community college system is, I think they take unfair hits. People look at things like graduation rates, which tend to be very, very low, and say, what, what's, what are you guys doing? What's, what's wrong with you? You have a 20% completion rate. Well, when, when you're spending half your time teaching students stuff they should have learned or were supposed to have learned in high yeah. school, Yep. Of course, your completion rate after two or three years is going to be low, you know. And and God bless community colleges. Yeah, you know, here, this here. goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's the one place 
where the focus pretty much exclusively on teaching. You know, unlike a place like Harvard or even a place like McAllister where there's a focus on teaching and research, I would say at a place like Harvard, it's more research, less teaching. At a place like Mm -hmm. McAllister, it's maybe 50-50. At a community college, the focus is on the student and the focus Ah. is on teaching. And, And there's something wrong with a system where the least well-paid and least respected members of the academic community are people who teach in community colleges. Mm. Think about this for a minute. Think about this. The, The less contact you have with students in higher education, the more prestigious you are. And so, you know, a full professor at an Ivy League institution has typically relatively little contact with students. Whereas That's a full true. professor at a community college may t- might teach eight or ten courses a year. <laughs> That's right. And yet that that full professor, you know, that full professor at, at an Ivy League college will be paid three times, so That's maybe right. four times what the full That's professor right. at a community college will be paid. So, That's right. Um, so I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan of what community colleges are trying to do and of their potential. Uh, and, and again, I agree. I mean, right now there still is a major economic benefit, despite what everybody says, to getting a college degree. Um, but it's not for everybody. Uh, it's, but it also shouldn't be only for the children of the elite, and that's my concern about that's, where we're headed. That's, that's the whole point. And should professors, literally, if you want to become a college professor in physics, I don't care what it is, in biology, okay, you, before you can go and apply to that college, you need to take some teaching courses on pedagogy. That should be required everywhere, so you know what you're dealing with. It it. I, mean, I think graduate education. I talk about. I talk about this in the book. You know, graduate education needs to be seriously rethought. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a great line in in that I quote in the book. Um, it's not from me. It's from a guy named Lenny Cazuto who wrote a book called The Graduate School Mess in which he says all over the country, millions of professors are training tens of thousands of graduate students for jobs that don't exist. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's still, you know, graduate school is still designed to prepare you to be a professor at an elite university. Uh, and there ain't a lot of those jobs. No, there are not. Uh, and, And so, and the same is true at the undergraduate level, you know, God bless my own discipline, English. Most English majors are designed to educate English professors and that's not what most English majors are going to do. Yeah. So, you know, we need to think, we think, need to think the way the curriculum is organized both at the undergraduate and the graduate level really to prepare these students for the world that they're going to move into. So if everybody knows. We're not doing a good enough job. Yeah. Everybody knows this is happening. Okay, there are there are there isn't enough positions open for the English teachers to become professors. Who's going to make the change? Who's making the big change? Where's the change happening? Do you see it anywhere? You know, there are there are a few glimmers. Um, so Brandeis University, um, right right near where we both are. right right around um, the corner from you, kind of. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they've done some interesting things in their in some of their humanities PhD programs, and that is they are they're trying to train students for jobs beyond simply being English professors. Uh, 
Um, so they're having them do residencies and internships in other industries so that they can get their PhD and yeah. maybe work in in publishing or work in communications or work at a foundation. Um, so um, there are a few, but it's very, very slow. I mean, there's, I wouldn't describe <laughs> it as anything like wholesale change. Well, and it has to be, and that people have to you just have to change your minds about all this. And by the way, I am full agreement with you. There, there isn't a, everybody I talk to who says they want to send their kid to college. I said, please send them to community college first. It's less expensive, and they will find what they want to do, and then take it further. Okay, and things have to change out there, and they have to change from from freshmen on to higher ed. Okay, and the people within have to understand this is a change. Professors have seen it. They have seen their jobs lost to adjunct professors who do not even have mm-hmm. office hours. I mean, you know that. Right. You know, it, it, it's, it's just not fair. Okay, I know someone who graduated. Here we go with dance again. I know somebody who graduated. The kid was 22 years old. She graduated as a dance major from, uh, I can't remember which college here in Maine. It's not Maine, here in New England. Okay, and she was hired to teach dance as an adjunct at a college in 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 Massachusetts. And I said mm-hmm. to my friend who had told me about this, I said, "That's not fine that she was hired, but people are paying full tuition for a course that was is being taught by someone who has never taught in her life." Okay, she just graduated. You expect the expectation that I will have a professor there who knows what they're doing. That's a that's a cheap way out of it to hire somebody who's fresh out of college to teach a college course. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? No, and it's a, you know, but it's a reflection of what I described earlier: the economic the pressure economics. that these institutions yeah. are under. Uh, you know, the look when you have a tenured. Criticizing tenure is a difficult thing to do for someone like me who was a tenured professor, <laughs> and it's probably the aspect of my book that gets tenured faculty most angry, and I understand that. And you know, I don't want to align myself with um, with some of the attacks on tenure that you're seeing yeah. in some southern states for yeah. purely political reasons. Yes, but Ridiculous. but the reality is that when you have a, a system where someone essentially has a guaranteed job for life and it often is literally for life. Yes. Um, It's, it puts first of all, it puts enormous financial pressure on the institution because obviously if you have a, an 80 year old full professor, you're paying that person a lot more than you're paying an introductory adjunct faculty member. Uh, The average age of a professor is about 10 years older than the average age in the American workforce. Uh, those people are maler and they're whiter. Uh, huh. And because huh. you have to, because you're locked into those people, A, you, you, deans and presidents tend to move to adjuncts because they're less expensive. Uh, and B, you have very wow. little ability to, to reshape your curriculum. If you hire a, a person to teach 18th century British literature in 1990, they're probably still there teaching 18th century British literature, whether you need it or not. You're exactly right. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think there are pluses to tenure, there are minuses to tenure, but it's impossible to argue that it is not an impediment to transformational change and it's not putting a lot of pressure on college budgets. 
Yeah, my simple example is give people tenure, make it last for 10 years, okay, and then have a review and look at it economically, look at it this, look at it that, okay? It's just, it's something we have to conquer here. And, and the, the best and the brightest minds, I hope they're like yours, Brian, okay? I hope we're working on this. We got to go. Are you leaving on vacation tomorrow? Did I hear that from you? Uh, no, I'm actually going, I'm on the board of the Teagle Foundation. I'm going out to a conference and then I also work with a university in Africa. So I fly from San oh. Francisco to Kigali, Rwanda wow. uh, and spend about a week wow. in Rwanda. That that would be a subject for a whole nother conversation. The African Leadership University, absolutely fascinating place. Would you like me to get, would you like to schedule a show on that at some point? I'd love, to, I'd love to talk about it. Oh, I would love to have it's that. Been, I would love to have that show. I will write you today. Work. Yeah, I will write you today, okay. and we'll do something in December or January on that. I would love to do a show on that. That's fabulous. That'll be perfect. It'll be after I just I came back from my most recent visit. I, the place is. Imagine trying to, to educate students in a in a in a continent that's the most underserved in the world, and that's where right. they have very little money. You and one quarter, I just read this, one quarter of the Earth's population will be African in another twenty twenty five years, whatever that number is. Okay, we've right. got to take care of the people. Okay, congratulations and on doing that. Have a great trip to Rwanda. Go see the incredible gorillas there. Gorillas yeah, in the mist. I have, I've been there multiple times. I still haven't seen the gorillas. Go see the gorillas. Go see the gorillas. Uh, Brian, thank you. Safe travels where you're going. You'll hear from me. We're going to set up that other show. Thank you for today. I really appreciate it. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. Okay, have a good one. Be safe. You okay? Too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Brian Rosenberg, his book, as I have it here, is called Whatever It Is, I'm Against It, Resistance to Change in Higher Ed. Hey, everybody, get off your high horse. Come on, man. Let's make some changes and get these kids educated and educated well and take care of everybody who's doing it. Put everything in perspective for higher ed. My name is Larry Jacobs. I'm asking you to go over and check out what we do at ace-ed.org. Thank you for listening. Have a great day, and thank you, Dr. Rosenberg. Check out his book. It's really good reading. 